This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers is a screenwriting education and training platform for writers looking for a guided path to success. Programs are hosted by working industry executives and are designed to empower writers with actionable tools and insights to elevate their craft and cultivate industry relationships. Since 2016, Roadmap has helped more than 84 writers sign to representation and countless others get staffed, optioned, or sell their script. To learn more, visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Roadmap Writers, the road to your screenwriting success starts here. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going to give feedback on five more of your Paper D's entries. Plus, we are going to announce all the ticket information for our November 20th live read, as well as the winner of that live script reading. So stay tuned because we're just getting started. And before we get into today's session, if you want to spoil yourself and get tickets to our November 20 live event, you can do so right now at paperteam.co slash live read. That's L-I-V-E-R-E-A-D for all the ticket information. Yeah, the event will take place on Wednesday, November 20, starting at 8 p.m. at ArtShare LA in downtown LA. That's right. And the event will be followed by a Q&A slash feedback session. So we would really love to have you in the audience to hear your thoughts. Tickets are $5 and all proceeds go back to ArtShare LA, who are providing us with the space. They're a community art space that provides access to exhibits, programs, and educations for local artists of all backgrounds. So once again, that's paperteam.co slash liveread, L-I-V-E-R-E-A-D, to get your ticket. And uh, let's head to today's session of Paper Tees. And uh, do you want to remind the audience what Paper Tees is if uh, people are listening to this episode for the very first time? So Paper Tease is a regular segment of our podcast where you send in your teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, as long as it's the start of a TV script, and we'll give you feedback and thoughts on it. Absolutely. And uh, we begin today with our Patreon subscriber slot, that dedicated slot for our Patreon subscribers. And today's uh, tease is Birdsong by Jennifer Dunn. In summary, 20 years ago, a grandmother, Granny Birdsong, and a seven-year-old named Sarah Birdsong are stirring potions in the grandmother's home. A special alert on the TV informs us that seven-year-old twin brothers have been missing for 31 hours. The local deputy knocks on the Birdsong's door, asking the grandmother if she can use her powers to find the children. But it seems Granny Birdsong can't help with powers for these particular boys. Later that night, Sarah wakes to find staring at her Lincoln, one of the two missing children looking like a fresh corpse. He asks her for her help regarding his brother and reveals that he himself is dead. We then cut to a policewoman draping a blanket around Lincoln's twin brother as EMTs wheel out Lincoln in a small body bag. What were your thoughts on this one, Alex? Well, I like the concept of the piece. I wasn't a huge fan of the execution of it. I feel like a lot of the emotional weight of what was being shown on screen and explained to us was missing. I feel like it's really interesting to have a dynamic of the witches in the backdrop of the these uh, missing twins. And then we reveal that the youngest granddaughter gets a visit from uh, the ghost of uh, Lincoln. And then we reveal that he's actually dead. I feel like all those elements are interesting on paper, but the execution of it, I feel like left the emotion on the table. That was the biggest piece that was missing for me. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I agree. I think it was quite well written on the page, and I think it does a lot to set up a quite an interesting world and set of characters. You know, we establish these things like the fact that this woman has some sort of magic and that even, you know, the local police will come to her for help. You know, there's a lot of interesting elements in play there. And then, of course, the reveal of this young girl also having these powers and this vision is almost like a good inciting incident for what could happen with the rest of the thing. But I agree with you in terms of the execution. I think that the teaser itself didn't offer any sort of like ongoing or unresolved conflict. It almost wrapped it up a little bit too easily at the end there. They already found the body and they found the living brother. I don't really know what the the conflict is from there. What happens now? Yeah. And uh, one of the elements that was missing for me was a more active drive to the scenes. Uh, like you said, the conflict is being resolved every time when we cut to Lincoln and uh, the sort of the setup of the piece is already resolved within that teaser, which is fine some level. But I feel like the way the writer was leading us into those moments, I felt like could be flipped around where, for example... Instead of front-loading the episode about a description of the grandmother's house, this may be a little bit cliche, but it could start on the TV and uh, talking about the missing kids, and then you pull back to reveal the granny and Sarah exchanging some kind of potions, and we get a better sense of them as characters in that way, as opposed to just starting on this dynamic that doesn't really explore what the plot is or the story and the dynamic in that sense. Right. And on that kind of notion of flipping it, you could even start this entire thing on this young girl in bed and a young drowned boy kind of shows up asking for her help or something like that. You know, that kind of creates a lot of questions and mystery. And then from there, we can expand out that world in terms of the grandmother being involved in magic. Exactly. And to that point, I'm tying back to what I said earlier about the, the emotion that was missing. I feel like a lot of the juice of those scenes can be, well, I'm going to be using my classic mixed metaphor here, but it can be milked further. Oh, at least the tension of the scenes can be milked further. It's especially that scene with Sarah and Lincoln, you can make every beat count where we are living that scene through her perspective. We see what she sees and you can even break it down in new paragraph like Lincoln Banyan, the missing child from the TV with bluish skin, leaves in his hair, leeches on face. He's terrifying and he's staring right at Sarah. That's perhaps a more approachable, evocative way of still having the same content but explored in a different order that still gives that more that biggest momentum and that oof that you need when you're reading it and discovering what's happening in the scene. Yeah, we've often talked about point of view when it comes to these teasers. And if we didn't live this entire teaser through the point of view of the young girl, then you know you do get to experience that horror of this young boy showing up much more viscerally than this kind of more general or omniscient uh, point of view where we're in the, the view of the grandmother and the cop and all that sort of thing. Exactly. And to juxtapose that horror with maybe Sarah's nonchalantness uh, and the fact that she's not being that scared and that actually reinforces the idea that's set in the prose but could actually be shown that way where in this world it's not really unexpected for a dead ghost or well, a ghost or a dead body to show up at someone's bedroom so i feel like there's room to maneuver there where on paper the idea maybe on a bullet point list work but on the execution level i feel like the emotion is just not there yet yeah that's a great opportunity to subvert the audience's expectations you think a little dead boy wandering into the room of a young girl is going to be a classic horror scene where she screams and runs out of the room but instead she's like Oh, hi. You know, it's like, here, here, here's another one, you know, that kind of thing. So for sure, I agree with you, because I think that like the content itself is there. It's just making the most of it on the page. Another opportunity I feel like should be used here is the match cuts between scenes, especially because I feel like the outs of each scene are a little bit weak. Uh, this is a case where the out, especially the out between the scene with Lincoln and Sarah and uh, the scene with uh, Lincoln in the body bag can be linked further emotionally 
emotionally by doing some kind of visual match cut. Maybe off of Lincoln's face with leeches, we match cut to him on the body bag being willed up EMTs, and we then find his twin brother, Levi, being draped with a blanket by a policewoman, because as it stands, uh, there's a little bit of confusion where the tension of Lincoln being dead is completely deflated by just seeing some boy being draped in a blanket. And also, just visually, if you think about it, it's going to be even more confusing to an audience because they're seeing presumably someone they think is Lincoln, right? Because that's his twin brother. He looks exactly like Lincoln. They don't know that it's Levi. There's no tell tell sign that this is a twin brother. So we're cutting from a, a, a sort of a ghost to Levi being draped in a blanket. And I feel like that leads us down the wrong path. Right. You want to use those kind of moments and cuts to reveal something that we don't already know or surprise us or subvert something rather than just showing us the same thing again, because then you lose all of the impact of that. So I think that's a good point is to be aware of uh, your transitions between scenes and the outs on all of those. And especially for a cold open, you really want to end on the strongest possible button or bump or whatever you want to call it. Right. And to that idea, I feel like that's probably the last thing that was missing to me is what is the out? I feel like the idea of this missing kid being actually found, but then dead, that's a strong out. The execution was a little bit weak in the sense of there's a lack of tension and build up to that moment. We don't really care about Lincoln. We don't really care about Levi. We don't really care about these kids because the only thing we know is that literal one sentence of the TV alert that's in the middle of this other sequence between the granddaughter and grandmother. So I feel like if you milk those emotions at the top of the scene and really use the scene between Granny and Sarah as the opportunity to see how they interact and talk about this missing uh, children case, I feel like that's where you also have a missed opportunity potentially. Did you have any uh, micro notes on the page? Uh, well, my biggest micro note is just at the top, uh, especially on page one, I just wanted uh, the information, especially when it's heavy expositionary descriptive information to be broken up for an easier read. When you start off a whole teaser and pilot on three back-to-back paragraphs of heavy description, I feel like that's heavy on the eyes. And uh, if you were to break up the information and sort of condense it, especially in this case where I don't feel like the heavy description of the grandmother's house is relevant to what the teaser is about. I get the idea of giving a vibe to it, but I feel like you could sum it up in a couple of sentences. I feel like the last sentence about a witch's cottage give a better sense of what this house is and how that ties to the character than uh, three pages talking about the drywall. I think other than that, it was it was fairly well executed uh, in terms of the formatting and, and the writing on the page and was sparse enough to keep our attention. Oh, absolutely. I don't want to necessarily negate the, the fact that the prose is well written. I feel like when I go into the teasers. And some people think I'm, I'm dragging them necessarily on the podcast, but I'm not really dragging them. It's just basically, they're not commenting on anything else. To me, like that means- that done well. Exactly. Yeah. That's done well. So yeah. I'm not here to spend 30 minutes complimenting people on their amazing teasers. I'm here to dissect on ways of improving them. And I feel like that's what we're both here to do. That's why we're appear sometimes as if we're being a tough teacher as a <laughs> dragging the people. For sure. We love you all. <laughs> so on that note, what makes us want to read on here versus not? Like I said, uh, to me, it's emotion. On paper, the idea is there. I like the idea of this missing kid that reappears at this uh, young child's bedroom. And uh, you get a sense that, oh, actually, this is just a day-to-day for her. This is just another day in the park. And she's maybe helping the detective find uh, the kids. I don't know. Anyway, point is emotion. That's the my biggest takeaway, at least. Yeah. For me, I think I wanted to see more of a sense of connection flowing into what the rest of the show is going to be about, just because it does feel a little bit too 
resolved at the end there. And then also this is 20 years ago. And then we don't get to see what 20 years later is. Now, obviously you're perhaps saving that for the start of act one, but at the same time you could offer something that is, you know, a contrast, like you could include the cut to 20 years later at the end of your teaser and see how, you know, this stuff happening to her as a child has changed who she is today. Or in what does she do now? Does she run a detective agency? Does, you know, does she work as a medical examiner? What is the connection between right. you know, 20 years ago and now? And how does that make it a show? I definitely agree. That's not something we mentioned until now. It's just the idea that this is actually a flashback. It's not a, a self-contained a teaser in the sense of it's not a, a tease of the show. It's a preamble to the actual series. So if that's the case, then to next point, I feel like you are doing yourself a disservice by not juxtaposing what is going on with Sarah. Presumably she's the lead of the show to uh, Sarah when she's in her late 20s and uh, how that's impacted you know her life and the way she behaves. Yeah. And in fact, I would say if you're not going to cut to present day, then don't say 20 years ago, just say when you get to the present day, now it's present day because you know it's the Chekhov's gun thing. Like don't put something in there if you're not going to use it in that same section. And as a reminder, if you would like to submit uh, your paper tease through our Patreon special reserved slot for our feedback, you can do that at paperteam.co slash Patreon. We'll be putting at least one of our Patreon supporters into our paper tease feedback session every month. And our next teaser is Principles, not Principal. That was a, a different teaser uh, by Stephen Krabash. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name, but in Principles, we find Sonny Collins in his car as he rifles through college acceptance letters for his son, Jordan Collins. He also has a tense conversation with his own father, Rick, who is accompanying him in the car. Sonny then storms inside the house to wake up a sleeping teenager who is late for school, but it turns out this is not his son, this is a student named Guy, and Sonny is his principal. We cut to Sonny's actual children, the athletic Jordan, and his younger son Paul, who has Down syndrome. Sonny forces the disrespectful kid to get ready for school, all the while talking to Rick. Once Sonny gets Guy in his car, he adjusts their rear view mirror to reveal that his father, Rick, was never there and we flash back to his dead body years earlier. Guy asks Sonny if he is okay and they drive off to school. What did you think of Principles? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of interesting ideas and characters in this teaser, but I guess like our previous teaser, I think the execution was a little bit mixed and could have been more effective. I think for me, it took me a couple of reads to really understand what was going on here because the writer is deliberately trying to play with our expectations. He's trying to set up the fact that we think that this is his son, Jordan, and he's going in to wake him up from school. And even though he has all these college acceptance letters, he's a delinquent and all this kind of thing that it's not. This guy's just an overly involved principal. But then we have kind of layers and layers on top of that where there's a dead father who it reveals is, is not really there. And just like a, a number of levels kind of going on where we're trying to confuse the audience too much at once. And that's not the best way to pull you into a series. I had the exact same thoughts, uh, almost down to the letter. To me, emotionally, I feel like that's perhaps the opposite of the previous teaser, where I feel like emotionally there's a lot there. There's a lot of nuances with uh, the family dynamic, and that's really interesting. But it is, in my mind, marred by this overly complex and, uh, to be honest, needlessly confusing way of walking us through that sequence of events, especially when the teaser is presumably a version of a day in the life of, and you get to see the life of this over-involved principal, I feel like that's a really interesting hook. And there's the contrast with his own children and the dad. I feel like there's a lot there. But then the turn of the teaser is that the father is dead and uh, there's voiceover over these events uh, for some reason. But I would lean into that as opposed to obfuscating things that we should be knowing or rather things that should not be 
twists in of themselves, like the fact that this is not his son, this is another kid, may work in the vacuum. But like you said, when it's like a layer upon layer of confusion, that doesn't really give us an idea of what the show really is about. Yeah, I think you need to kind of pick one of these twists or surprises and make that the game, quote unquote, of the teaser. Uh, if you try to put too many in, it's just going to leave people confused. And I think the one you should choose is going to really indicate to us what the core of the show is about. If everything in this show is about how overly involved in his students' lives this principal is, then perhaps it's the whole twist of like he's showing up to a kid's house and getting him out of bed and it's not actually his kid. And then we save the father thing for later in the script. And, you know, it's more of an end of the episode reveal or an act break or something that his father isn't really there. Or if it is a much more of a kind of family dynamic drama about how this principal, uh, you know, is so great with these kids, but has trouble with his own children or whatever it happens to be. And he's kind of haunted by this, his own father, uh, you know, making him worry about his ability to be a father and that kind of thing, then that's what you focus on. And the teaser is going to tell us this is what the show is about. Whereas, you know, if you put too many things at once, it leaves us wondering what the show truly is about. Right. And, and to me, like, it also comes down to the idea of rooted in emotion. Twists are not interesting in a vacuum. They're interesting because we care about these characters and we subvert those expectations and add another layer to the character nuances. Something like, if you think about This Is Us, which is a classic example of something similar, or or pitch. That's probably something that's identical, actually, because the twist of the pilot, spoiler alert for this cancel show, is that the dad is actually dead the whole time. So I feel like you could play that as an episode out. However, the question is, how much do you gain by hiding the ball? And how much do you really lose by just front-loading the fact that this is a guy haunted by his dead father? Because honestly, when I was reading the pilot, despite the confusion, I was looking at Rick having voiceover over flash pops of events. And in my mind, I'm like, why is this guy in this car talking about this other person's life? And I'm like, oh, I hope that he's not dead because that'd be a kind of like on the nose, but he is dead. And so that to me, like that sort of gave the ball away in a way that doesn't really gain you any favors in terms of the emotion you're trying to pull with the lead character. Right. And outside of just the kind of content of what we're presenting there, I think that the, the, the way that it was executed in terms of having a scene with some voiceover and a flashback and intercutting and even the flashback to the father's dead body, it was all just kind of a little too overly complicated and didn't allow the reader to really settle into the groove of the story. You know, we want to be able to find a home and sit in it and allow it to kind of move forward and be in this character's point of view and be feeling those emotions and that sort of thing. And when we're being thrown about from place to place, I would really just sort of sit down and take a look and and ask yourself, does this need to be here? Does this voiceover need to be here? Does this flashback need to be here? Does these cut to another thing and then a cut back need to be here. Try to find a line of more consistent focus in a teaser. Right. I do feel like there is a middle ground to be had where you don't necessarily need to tell this story linearly. And I feel like I do get on some level what the writer was trying to do in terms of juxtaposing the emotion of the dad's sort of judgment with the late character struggles with his family and uh, this other kid. So I get it emotionally. But in terms of the narrative, I feel like there's ways of easing the reader into understanding on the page what is going on. An easy, simple thing to do is, for example, 
use italics when you're using flash pops, especially when you're using flash pops, like at the end of uh, the teaser, when you do a one single flash pop to the dead dad, at least signal that we're jumping back and forth for this quick pop. And in my mind, I would go one step further and avoid the corpse scene entirely because we get it. But if you are actually going to be using these flash pops and sort of uh, juxtaposing the voiceover of this uh, dead character, judging these flashbacks or uh, uh, slice of life moments from the lead character, then at least help us understand that this is a flash moment and not linearly what is happening in the next sequence. Right. And that's all I mean. I'm not saying you need to pull everything out completely. I'm just kind of saying that there's a certain level at which the artifice of telling the story obscures the narrative itself. And I think that you just take a look at what is necessary and what's not and what can be saved for later and what creates the most effective vignette. Absolutely. And uh, do you have any micro thoughts? Yeah, I don't think I had any particular kind of, uh, you know, issues with like the way it was formatted or that sort of thing. There were definitely like personal choices about kind of capitalizing and italicizing and all that sort of thing. But I think it was used fairly consistently throughout. And in terms of kind of editorializing of the story, at times it, it bordered a little bit on uh, overly spelling things out for me. But I think for everyone, that's always a, kind of a personal interpretation of whether that works for you or not. Yeah, I agree. I feel like overall it was well written. Uh, what I said before about the formatting of the piece, I feel like would really help drive for the idea of the, this nonlinear narrative. So that's my biggest uh, sort of micro, which to me is more macro thought, actually. But what makes us want to read on versus not? Yeah, I guess for me, it's about finding the thread of the story. If I know what everything's going to be about, uh, in a little bit more of a concrete way and what's driving us forward and what's what's the momentum of this story leading us into, I would be much more interested to turn that page and know what's going on next. But right now, I think I have a number of different threads pulling in different directions, and I'm not sure that it neatly leads into any of them. So, you know, you've got the, the college acceptance letters with his kid, and I don't really understand necessarily what the conflict with that is there when he has all these options in front of him, aside from the father wanting him to go to Duke, his alma mater. And then you have these other kid who's, you know, he's trying to get to go back to school. And then there's the whole, you know, father thing. So I just like, I wanted one thing to latch onto and pull me into the next scene. Right. And I feel like that's the, the catch 22 here is that there are so many threads that any one of them can be compelling in of themselves. But if you were to focus the emotion of that teaser into one thread, and arguably the thread is that it's about this dad being judged by his own dad or the ghost of his dad. I feel like that's the, the real emotion there. And so I feel like if you land the emotion that the dad Dad, the, the real dad, Rick, is actually dead the whole time. You can live with that twist as the teaser out, but I want the teaser itself to be about the lead character. I really want to focus on his own crappy life or the way he's like struggling. And then we understand by the end of the teaser why his dad, his own dad, his dad, dad is judging him or why he's being haunted by his father, Rick. And so I feel like that's the, the key piece that's missing is like Nick said earlier about sort of streamlining and not necessarily, you know, bringing it back to linear pacing, but just even keeping the nonlinear narrative but walking us through the emotions of the lead character in a very simple, basic way until we get to the reveal that, for example, the dad is dead. All right, and our next teaser is Wildcats by J.B. June. And in Wildcats, we actually open on a cheesy 90s animated title sequence for a TV show called Wildcats, reminiscent of Thundercats and He-Man. It introduces the heroes Leto, Shadow, Ginger, and Snowball, as well as their enemies, the evil wizard king Greyfang and his henchmen. 
We then cut to present day where Lido, now 25 years older and out of shape, is showing his niece and nephew that Wildcats TV show on YouTube in an attempt to impress them. They're critical of it, especially when Lido claims that it was all real and actually a documentary of historical events. He then takes out some of the artifacts and weapons from the show and demonstrates their powers. He warns his niece not to put on a cursed ring, which she does anyway, and his iMac bursts into flames. We then cut to titles. What did you think of Wildcats? I actually really liked this. I kind of got the vibe of like an Archer meets Bojack type world, uh, really playing on the nostalgia of, you know, the whole Thundercats 90s cartoon team. You know, I thought there was fun writing, a good sharp sense of parody there as well. The only thing I would say here is that I was a little bit confused about where it was going after this uh, and what the show was about, but it is quite a fun cold open and uh, presentation of the world. I really had fun with this one. It's kind of unique. I mean, I, I do love the take on the Thundercats. It kind of reminded me a little bit of, a, nobody's going to remember the show, but there was a show called Father of the Pride, which was a CGI animated show that was created by uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it was basically based on the lines of uh, Secret and Roared, the, <laughs> you know? Nice. So uh, that's another show that did exist at some point, I think in, in the early 2000s, about CGI lines and the, the Pride. So anyway, my point is, I enjoy the piece. I would say if I were to criticize one element or one thing that would I would potentially pull back on is initially I felt like it took too long to get to the punchline of the animated joke, especially when half of the runtime of the teaser is just setting up this cartoon. Now, obviously, I feel like the cartoon is definitely enjoyable. I don't want to, you know, be too negative about it, but I feel like if the, the point of the show and the teaser is what's happening now with the other lines and uh, and these artifacts, I feel like we sort of get it uh, that uh, this is a a Thundercat type show and like a page. And you can maybe pepper clips from that show later in the episode. But as a teaser, I feel like you could perhaps tie it a little bit uh, tighter. Right. I think it's the kind of thing that works fine on the page, at least for me. But when you got to the editing room, you would probably edit that joke down to a page or a minute instead of the full kind of two minute run of everything going on there. But uh, yeah, I liked how it set up the world. I liked the kind of like cheesy song giving us the exposition. So it didn't really feel like it was just overly expository and people talking, all that kind of stuff. And then just the juxtaposition and the contrast later of, you know, this older version of this man. And I guess, you know, introducing that kind of like irony and conflict that he felt like all of this was real. And that obviously raised raises questions to us of, well, was it real? And they've just kind of covered up for it. Or is he kind of going crazy and senile? Like what's actually going on here? But overall, yeah, I thought that this was a lot of fun and, and well-written. Yeah, I, I did have one sort of usually micro note, but I'll still put it in the macro section uh, just because I feel like it was so prevalent throughout the script. And that is the stylistic choices that were made in terms of the formatting, uh, especially when you're mixing and mashing all kinds of formatting from uh, caps to bolds to italics. Now, obviously, italics make sense. It's uh, the voiceover. It's a different kind of dialogue. That makes sense. All caps and bold usually mean kind of the same thing, especially in this case where, you know, all caps is pretty straightforward. It's usually sound or something that's uh, emphasized. And uh, bold, the use of bold in, in this case, I didn't quite get. Initially, I thought, okay, this is interesting. They're bolding the fact that they want to highlight that this is an old 90s TV cell 
kind of animated shows, so it's to distinguish the visual style of uh, the scene, and that made sense. But then, if you look on page four, the bold is used to say, the iMac burst into flames in bold. And then the next line is a dialogue that says, what did I just say with just in both caps and bold? And then we hear the snarling of all cats just in caps. So again, uh, to me, if you restrain that to the visual distinction, I feel like that can definitely work if you compare the 90s TV cell turning into HD motion graphic. There's a point to uh, using bold in that sense. But as it stands, I felt like it went against the point of stylistic choices, which is to emphasize things. And third uh, things emphasized or emphasized in different ways, we're not quite sure what the point here is. Yeah, I could see bold just being used to kind of highlight these non-diegetic choices that this is the visual style of the show. But like you said, then it kind of like ventures into like, here's a line reading and that sort of thing. So keeping that more consistent, I think would work in general. Uh, otherwise, I think it was it was fairly clean and well established there, I guess, from a meta sense of submitting to paper tees. Uh, it included the first page of act one, which I would not recommend doing because we're just only looking at the teasers. So often we we will kind of uh, eliminate scripts that get sent in if they're just sent us in the first eight pages or 10 pages of a feature film or whatever and haven't clearly distinguished that it was a cold open or or not. So just be careful about that. Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely uh, say that minus the that stylistic uh, mashup that I mentioned, I feel like overall it was pretty well written and pretty well executed. And I feel like that's arguably hard to do and something that uh, I want to highlight is just the fact that, especially when you're mixing and mashing, just as we saw uh, the teaser before in terms of uh, doing uh, non-linear stuff or mishmashing uh, kinds of uh, formats and, uh, and genres, reversing people's expectations of things. I feel like this was well executed where it really led the reader into understanding, okay, this is a 90s cartoon and then this is actually HD animation and we understand that these two things are connected and I feel like that was really well put together. So what would you want to make us read on here versus not? I really enjoyed it overall. I feel like the the world is interesting. I just wanted perhaps more of what happens after. And, and again, to me, that ties back to what I said about keeping the, the joke of the animation sequence tighter so that you can have room to then dig into what the show is about, which is the dynamic with the other lines in the present day. Yeah, for sure. I think it's tricky, especially in comedy scripts and animation scripts where you have such limited real estate to get out, you know, kind of a funny self-contained vignette that also tells you about the story, all that sort of thing. So, you know, you're, you're competing for that space. But to some extent, I think that if you just pull off a very well, you know, a funny cold open that sets up the world, you kind of buy yourself credit with the reader insofar as, sure, even if there isn't a strong pull into the rest of the script, I'm willing to give it the credit to read on because I've just read an enjoyable three or four pages and let's see what happens next. So I think sometimes you can get away with that, particularly more in comedy, but uh, I always recommend if you can finding some way to kind of really push the momentum forward into the, oh, what's going to happen next. Definitely agree. On that note, let's move on to the next teaser, and that is The Void by Joshua Shine. And in The Void, we find a young woman named Aliyah waking up naked in a fetal position. She's tethered to the ground by a strange umbilical cord. She yanks it out and wanders through an abandoned post-apocalyptic rural town. She discovers a dead man with gray skin and a gaping hole in his chest, whose skin peels off and turns into flies. She then encounters a bearded man on a horse who promises to take her to safety. She gets suspicious and the bearded man's friend grabs her from behind and turns out 
They are bandits who are kidnapping people. She tries to fight them off when a mystery man comes to the rescue, shooting at them. They panic, worried the noise might attract the Reapers. Sure enough, moments later, a Reaper appears, a creepy dark monster figure that paralyzes and devours people and is immune to gunshots. The Reaper feasts on the bandits and almost gets Aaliyah until Wilbur, her savior from earlier, intervenes with a special gun that can hurt them. He hurries Aaliyah away, ignoring the sounds of other people pleading for help. Confused, Aaliyah asks where they are, and Wilbur explains that this is the afterlife. They are dead. What did you think of The Void? I really liked this teaser, too. I think that it did a really great job of setting up such a strange, bizarre world that is very unique. I haven't seen this kind of depiction of you know, an afterlife or a post-apocalyptic scenario before. There are a lot of very interesting original elements in play here, and I thought that the execution of them was actually really well done. Absolutely. I feel like this is one of the most engaging teasers that we've received so far. I have to compare it to Lost and uh, and obviously The Matrix when Neo wakes up with uh, you know pulling up his umbilical cord. I feel like, especially because this was very well crafted in terms of giving us a sense of urgency and leading us through the perspective of the lead character. For the most part, I have a note on that uh, in, a, in a second, but overall, I thought it was very well put together where visually we get a sense of uh, the logistics of uh, the place that Leah is in. We get an understanding of the different characters being introduced. They're introduced usually for the most part organically because uh, she's in jeopardy and uh, she's being uh, uh, confronted with different things. So I feel like that and, and still giving her a sense of agency despite the fact that she doesn't know where she is. So I feel like all those things put together are really positive. Now, with all that said, I had a, a couple of thoughts. One is I thought overall, because this is such a long teaser, that the action set piece dragged on, especially when you have eight pages of straight action and a chase sequence without any downbeats at any point in the opening teaser of a, of a show that can definitely get tiring. And I know I can already hear people saying, well, lost it, it lost it, 15 minutes of a Jack running through the wreckage. But if you think about it, lost opening sequence was probably agreed the closest example to one-shot uh, opener, kind of like this teaser, but it was all entirely from Jack's point of view without any cutaways to other parts of the jungle or the beach. Whereas in this example, and that ties back to what I said earlier, even though most of the teaser is from Aaliyah's perspective, I feel like it wasn't necessary to get a sense of the other characters because I wanted to be focused on her entirely through. And I feel like that would tighten the, the piece. Yeah, for sure. I think the least interesting moments to me were when we kind of had little asides with the bandits or the people putting the tied up people in the thing, or even, you know, with Wilbur, you didn't necessarily need any of those little pieces if we, if we had just stayed with Aaliyah and stuck to her, you know, confusion and panic and that sort of thing, I think it would have been even more effective because that's what I liked most about this piece was just the really great use of point of view and of withholding information from both the characters and the audience to contribute to that sense of mystery. And then everything just kind of felt like a natural logical cause and effect of, well, she finds some clothes and then she goes to this place and then she runs into conflict and has to escape. That was all very well kind of put together for me. Exactly. And, and I had a thought while I was thinking about sort of the, the, the fact that there's a lot of cutting away. The one thing to keep in mind is when you're cutting away to a different scene, you're losing Losing momentum, and it's your job to bring that momentum back up or to keep the momentum going if you're cutting from something to something, like a, a match cut or an action cut or something like that. And in this case, I didn't feel like the, the momentum was a little bit stalling in those pieces. I feel like that's why, Nick, perhaps you didn't engage as much in, in those cutaways. And the same thing with me is because we want to stay with Aaliyah. Aaliyah is the more evocative character. She's our lead. Uh, she's our perspective. She's confused like we are. And drip feeding of the information is really well done. So why do we need to cut away to 
uh, another character that's not tied to Aaliyah in this immediate sense. Uh, so I feel like if, if you cut the cutaways and uh, focus entirely on Aaliyah and, uh, and tied in that action sequence, I feel like it's extremely effective in that sense. Yeah, totally. And I think one of the, the, I guess, criticisms I would have is that at points it did feel a little exposition heavy out of some of the characters' mouths saying things that the other characters already knew. And surprise, surprise, those are in the moments where we cut away to the other characters anyway. So it, it contributed to the drag of those scenes. And what I'm referring to here is particularly the old man and the bearded man talking to each other about Reapers. Uh, I think you can get away with giving away minimal information about the Reapers because we're about to see them and they're about to start killing people. But, you know, we get into this whole back and forth of you might have attracted Reapers. You were louder than her it'll take more than a few screams to alert a reaper if there are any nearby like i don't think we need any of that necessarily right. and this and is something that those two men already know exactly and something again that's a i keep going back to loss but i feel like this is a great example of something that used the buildup of people's expectations without the characters really talking about a smoke monster i mean uh, if you look at the pilot of lost we see the grumbles in the jungle we see people reacting to it but we don't have a charlie talk to Said being is that a, a smoke monster i'm seeing do you think if we were making noise, the smoke monster is going to come this way? We don't need that. We just need a visual. And you have that. You have the Reapers coming out. You have that moment, that sort of horror movie moment where they come out and they kill people in a very horrible way. And so if you save that reveal for what it is, instead of sort of uh, shining a lantern on it before it happens and, and not even, maybe you can have one mention of a Reaper and that leads us to the actual Reapers, but without dragging us into dialogue about exposition. Uh, did you have any micro notes on this one? I had a couple of micro notes. The first thing I did want to mention is on page four, you have uh, two pieces of dialogue that says she might of and uh, you might of as in OF instead of H-A-V-E. That's a very strong peppy of mine. It's just a she might of or I could care less. No, you could not care less. And it's the same thing with she might of. It's a she might have. Right. Yeah. That's a, a result of people mishearing the kind of contraction of like might have and that kind of thing and thinking it's the word OF, but it's actually just the word have. So exactly. And uh, the second micro note is just a thought I had in terms of the font. I thought the font seemed uh, especially light when you compare it to, in this case, any of the paper teas that uh, we've received. The Birdsong, for example, is the classic courier font. Uh, Wildcats is more of a courier prime. This one, I am not quite sure. It was very light in a way that it was very difficult for me to read on my computer. And uh, you can definitely see it in uh, the writing when uh, the way the apostrophes or the full stops or the bold are really shining through whilst anything else is uh, kind of uh, blending into the white. Yeah, I don't know if this was written on a different screenwriting program where perhaps it was kind of post-processed afterwards. I did notice there were some little graphics on the cover page that, you know, perhaps this was run through like a Photoshop or some other sort of graphics editing program that then lightened up all of the text. But, you know, it is a subtle thing. But I think a good point, Alex, if someone sat down and read 60 pages of this, it might be a little tough on the eyes, perhaps. My micro notes were minimal. I think I noticed one typo in that same line where the bearded man's talking about the Reapers. He says, if there are any nearby, but they use the T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E, which again is also like a contraction that doesn't quite work there. But anyway, uh, that's a, obviously a small typo, but something to fix up. And the other thing for me was just the the final line where Wilbur thinks carefully and then says, this is the afterlife beat, we're dead. To me, if you flipped that around, it would be much more effective because if you're in the afterlife, then of course you're dead. So putting the punch and the beat on we're dead when that's information that we just had in the previous sentence doesn't make as much sense. If you'd said something like, you know, she's like, where are we? Tell me. And then he said something like, 
we're dead, welcome to heaven, you know, whatever happens to be. I think that would be a lot more effective a line than saying something and then basically repeating the same fact again, like it's some kind of awesome beat on the end of the, the sentence. And then welcome to the jungle plays in the background. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I definitely concur in terms of trying to maximize the reveal, but uh, to your point, I mean, you may be in the afterlife and not dead. Have you not seen the last season of Lost again? I mean, that's a classic <laughs> example of being in the afterlife, but still very confused about who's dead and who's alive to tell that story. Anyway, let's move on to what makes us want to read on versus not. Yeah, I think that this teaser does a great job of establishing all of the elements that are necessary to make me want to read on and find out what happens next. You have a, a fascinating, original, interesting world and landscape that this character f ends up in that is surrounded by mystery. You have constant sources of threat and conflict around them. Uh, there's a sense of momentum towards how do I get to safety? How do I save myself from this? And what is going on? There are a lot of questions that the reader wants answered, but in a good way. I definitely agree. I thought it was a very compelling, engaging opener very well written in terms of leading the reader through the perspective of their lead character and uh, sort of driving us through the action and keeping the momentum going aside from those uh, cutaways that we mentioned earlier. Bearing those, I really feel like this uh, teaser has a lot of, uh, going on for it. And now time for our final teaser, and that is Staff and Loot by Tony Faria. So in Staff and Loot, the young monk Ayara is training her apprentice Caleb to cast spells. Caleb isn't able to perform and is even mocked by a 12-year-old wizard. Ayara continues training Caleb, telling him that it's only a matter of time before Victus will need him. We then cut to a cave where 70-year-old Master Victus is battling a demon. He successfully kills his foe, but before he can celebrate, the environment around him moves to reveal that it's a huge black and red leg. The giant foot stomps Master Victus to death. What are your thoughts on this, Alex? Uh, it's interesting because I, I feel like the world has a lot of potential, but personally, I was much more invested in the final showdown with the 70-year-old Gandalf wizard and the Demon King than the sort of the preceding pages about the training sequence, especially because the training sequence, let's be honest, it's something that every Sword and Shield type with Dungeons and Dragons kind of fiction has done over and over again with its hero, and I didn't feel like that scene really brought anything new. But with that said, I thought the, the sequence with the wizard was really fun and interesting. So I feel like this is sort of the, the duality of those two uh, that are in my mind. Yeah, for sure. I think to, to go back to something you often say, Alex, I think that you could have milked a lot more out of that battle, uh, milked a lot of the juice or, or whatever mixed <laughs> metaphor you like to use. Uh, and, you know, it's such a cool visual on this idea of just battling a demon. And then when he kills one demon, there's actually an even huger demon that goes to kill him again. You know, that said, I did like the execution at the very end that almost felt comical in a way of how quickly he was like stomped to death <laughs> at the end of the thing that said you could have a more protracted battle before that but uh it definitely the choices leaned into a certain kind of dark comedic tone that i did enjoy exactly and i feel like to the idea of milking thing considering that this is uh presumably a comedy or at least a dramedy i did want more from that training sequence that could either be lampooned or subverted or added uh and uh, give us a better sense of those characters in a unique way that i have not seen before I mean, granted, the 12-year-old kid does play well to uh, contrast Caleb's uh, ineptitude, but as an opening scene, especially, I thought it lacked momentum before the Victus fight. I mean, I don't think it's enough for a teaser, but there's a world where just the, the wizard fight is could be a teaser in of itself, or at least leading into the training sequence. So I feel like that's where you got to find yourself in is what is going to be driving the most momentum moving forward. Yeah, for sure. If you open on that fight, and then this is the first scene of Act 1 or whatever where it's training, like, well, at some point, 
Invictus might need you. And then the news comes that Victus just died in this fight or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Uh, I think that could work as well. But yeah, I, I agree in general with your thoughts there, Alex. I, I don't know if the, the writer uh, has seen a show called Black Clover, which is an anime, but it has a very similar opening with a, a young kid who hasn't quite learned how to use magic. And there's other people there who are doing better than him. It, it, it had some interesting similarities. So I'd recommend checking that out just to make sure you're not straying too close to that as well. Excellent. And uh, did you have any micro notes? No, I didn't really have any particular uh, micro notes on the formatting or the stuff that was being used. I thought that it was all quite sparsely written and, and carried in an effective way. I liked the little injections of humor and things, even like the titles like Interior Showdown Cave. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I was fine with it. Definitely agree. The, the slug lines were amongst the best part of the teaser. I did have one micro note, and that's the use of voiceover in the final battle sequence with Victus. There's a voiceover piece of dialogue from Ayara that doesn't quite fit, especially because the whole sequence is a fight sequence with Victus and uh, there's nothing that really gives us the idea that Yara is going to narrate that sequence in any capacity or give us voiceover. So especially for just a one-liner, I didn't feel it really added anything and uh, in fact detracted from the fight. Yeah, maybe that's a matter of the timing from the previous scene where she was having a conversation and then it feels like a lot happens and then suddenly her voice comes back in. Maybe just it's a matter of kind of like working the flow in a little bit better there to have that dramatic irony of her saying the appropriate thing at the time when this thing happens in front of us. So what would make us want to read on here versus not? Uh, I mean, I guess a better sense of just the how this world is going to be different or rather how these characters are going to be different than your traditional wizard apprentice or a young monk uh, you know in that in that sort of fantasy world especially because you do have that interesting uh, fight sequence and subversion of expectations in that sense uh, i do like the idea of this dark comedy world in this fantasy world so i feel like there's a lot of potential there i just wanted more from just the lead characters essentially i think that's a great point i think that whenever you do any sort of genre show these days you really need to point out what is unique and interesting and what is your particular take on this and your angle into it that is different from anything that we've seen before because there is so much of it already out there in the world so finding a way to kind of highlight that like there are little interesting elements of how their magic is used and, and things like that but just highlighting that again and and showing us like what is it about this fantasy world that we haven't ever seen and why is this going to be enough to sustain an entire series absolutely and on that note uh, that is almost a wrap on uh, paper tease for this year but as always, you can submit your teasers of uh, eight pages or less, any format, any genre, as long as they're TV pilot teasers, obviously, at paperteam.co slash teaser for our next Paper Tease season or session uh, season two or three. I don't even know now what what this is, but uh, I'm sure we'll keep going until uh, we're dead. <laughs> and uh, release a Blu-ray with a, a director's commentary. Ooh, and, uh, it's a, is it going to be a commentary of us? On, on our own commentary, yes. <laughs> that will not be, well, speaking of things that are going to be confusing to the audience, I feel like that would take the cake. But on that note, let's move on to the winner. And the winner is Wildcats by J.B. June. Uh, we read his pilot and we love the concept and the world and the execution. So we're very excited to have it on our live table read event on November 20. And that's right. And once again, you can get your ticket and all the needed information for this event at paperteamaco slash live read. That's L-I-V-E-R-E-A-D. And we'll have a lot of amazing actors such as Jonah Chow from Halt and Catch Fire, Justin Michael Terry from Stargate Origins, and Ben Prendergast from Preacher. So we really can't wait to see you all there supporting our amazing paper team writing community. 
All right, and before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patron podcast, cheat sheets, and there's even a dedicated Paper Tees slot just for our Patreon supporters. So get onto this at paperteam.co slash Patreon, and we can keep producing a great show for you like this one every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. And you can get all the show notes and Paper Tees excerpts for this episode at Paper Team Melco slash 158. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we are actually off for Veterans Day, but we will be back on Monday, November 18, with Aaron Eli Colliette, who is the showrunner and creator of Netflix's post-apocalyptic comedy, Daybreak. So uh, we'll be shook. We'll see you then. See you then.